seated. If you would turn to Genesis 35, Genesis 35, we are continuing this morning in our trek through the book of Genesis. And here's what's happening for this morning. We are going to look at chapter 35, beginning in verse 16, because we really didn't wrap that up last week. So we're going to start in Genesis 35, verse 16, and we're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 36. So it's a long reading. It's a longer reading. And chapter 36 is not exactly exciting. It's a lot of names and a lot of genealogy. But I think it honors God when we read his word, even when his word at times may seem hard or distant to us. Does that make sense? We're not here just to have our ears excited, right? Or our, we're here to honor God. And I think it honors him when we do this. So I was tempted this week to say, let's skip chapter 36 or let's Overview, summary, something. But I think God has it in there for a purpose, and so we're going to have it read to us, and then we're going to explore it together. So Elspeth's going to read the first part. She's going to read the second half of chapter 35, and then Kelly, we're going to be cheering her on the whole time as she reads through all the names, and we look for... I would encourage you... Sorry, I'm babbling. I, I would encourage you to look for familiar names as we go through chapter 36. Because there are some in there that you should see and you might go, oh, I know about that. That's going to happen later. So just have your eyes open for that. And I'll even tease you along a little further. We're going to find Christmas and Easter in chapter 36. So have your eyes open for Christmas and Easter as we read chapter 36. So here we go. Stay awake. We can do it. Genesis 35:16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. That's me. You okay? Everybody okay? <laughs> All right. Genesis 35:16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, "Do not fear, for you have another son." And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, 
Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac and Mamre and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. <clears throat> now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basemath bore Ruel, and Oholibamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land far, I'm sorry, he went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Ruel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, the chiefs Nehath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom, these are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife. The chiefs, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, 
Zibian, Anna, Daishan, Ezer, and Daishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Horai and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alban, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibian, Aya, and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibian, his father. These are the children of Anna, Daishan and Oholibama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Daishan, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Akan. These are the sons of Daishan, Uz and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibian, Anna, Daishan, Ezer, and Daishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham, the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. Hashem died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Masrakah reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shal of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shal died, and Balhanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Balhanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place. The name of his city being Pau, his wife's name was Mehetabal, the daughter of Matrid, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places, by their names, the chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Oholibama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Taman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we're going to begin with renewal part two. We're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday. Last Sunday we talked about how God met Jacob and renewed him. And we looked at six different aspects of renewal or six different ingredients of renewal. And I just want to uh, fly over them very quickly as a way of reminder. I think they all are on the screen. But we, we looked last night about the fact that renewal is about God. It's not about us bettering ourselves. But it is about God being at the center of everything that we do. That's where renewal begins. It's about his pursuit of his people, his pursuit of us, like he pursued Jacob. It's about his word and his ways. It's about God communicating to his people, not leaving us in the dark, telling us about who he is and, and how we can relate to him. It was about his promises. God makes great promises to Jacob, and God has made many promises to us that are meant to fuel renewal. You want to be renewed this morning in your, in your zeal for Christ. Reflect on some of the promises that are made in Scripture for his children. They're breathtaking. They're eternal. We can bank on them. 
wonderful promises that can change our hearts. We talked about God changing Jacob's name, but it was more than just his name. It was his actual identity that was being changed and how God changes our identity when he calls us to be one of his children. And then we wrapped it up by talking about our response, how Jacob responded and how we can respond and should respond to all these magnificent things that are true about God and his desire to renew us. How all of us have at times different foreign gods that attack our hearts, right? The spirit is in there, but then things that can come in that are foreign to the spirit and they, they can wreak havoc in our souls. And we saw how Jacob wanted to put those things to death. He wanted to bury them literally under a tree. And I encourage you last week to identify those and bury them, get rid of them. And so I hope that this past week you were able to spend some time on your own, in your community group setting or your group of three to really review this list and to talk to others about this list and to, to see where God wanted you to explore more deeply one of these areas for your own personal renewal. And then we kind of ended that time talking about how we want our, our sanctification to match our justification, how we've already been made pure, we've already been clothed, and now we want to live like people who are pure and clothed. We want, we want the world to see our justification by our sanctification, by how we live our lives. People who love Jesus and, and, and want to get away from sin and love him more and live for him and we want those two to come in harmony with one another, how God sees us and then how we actually live our lives each day. Well, this morning, there's two more things in this passage I want us to consider that are very relevant to our renewal. I don't know if you've ever, like, really set your heart out, like, I just want to stir my faith in God more. Like, I want to take the next few weeks and really just fuel my soul with things about God so I can, I can find my heart on fire for him again. And if you've ever done that, you may have noticed that as you start to do that or in the process of doing that, things often happen that get in the way. And that's really what happens in the story with Jacob. This isn't some pie in the sky. Oh, Jacob skips off into the sunset, you know, radiant with God's glory. There's tragedy in this chapter. Chapter 35 has tragedy in it. And I wanted to show us two things first about tragedy. So if you're taking notes, the seventh thing I would say about renewal is that it takes perseverance through tragedy. And there's two tragedies that Jacob faces. The first is death. We didn't see the first death in the chapter because that was from last week, but we saw two in this one. It was a, a death trilogy, if you will, in Jacob's life during this time of renewal for him. And it seems like perhaps the three people that meant the most to Jacob died during this time of renewal. So the first one is, is Deborah, or maybe it's Deborah, I don't know. Um, but if you look at verse, you have to go back in chapter 35 to verse 8. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. It just, it's inserted in there, almost out of nowhere. It's kind of strange. We don't, we don't even know who she is. She's mentioned once back, I think it's in chapter, oh, what chapter is that? Chapter 24, she's mentioned, but not by name. This is the first time we get her name. And here she's called her nurse, which makes me wonder if she's probably the one that raised Jacob more than Rebecca did. And maybe that's why she's mentioned here. Maybe she was closest to him. And Moses thought she was so close to him and he was close to her that we're going to mention her death. There's no mention of Rachel's death anywhere or Rebecca's death. 
But there's the mention here of her death, which is sort of strange why her name would be mentioned here unless she was significant to Jacob in some sort of way. So she passes away. And then, of course, the second person, Rachel, is mentioned. Sorry before I said Rebecca wasn't. Rachel here is his wife. She's about 50 years old, and we see her death. And we know she was the love of his life. So certainly at age 50, and under those circumstances of her dying while giving birth, must have devastated him. In fact, in chapter 48, later, years later, he's going to talk still about his sorrow over Rachel. He says this, as for me, this is Genesis 48, 7, as for me, when I came to pat on my sorrow, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. So he's still reflecting upon her and is still grieving over her years and years later. So his nurse dies, perhaps the woman who raised her. Rachel, his wife, dies. And then lastly, in verse 28, of course, Isaac dies. His father dies. So he kind of loses his mom figure, his dad, and his wife all in this one little chapter. It's sort of a, of a strange thing that they would be mixed in here in this chapter. But it seems like Moses had a plan. I mean, you just notice how they're spread out in the chapter. Isn't it kind of weird? I mean, Deborah dies. It's out of the blue. It just pops into the story. And then the storyline continues. All this renewal for Jacob, and then his wife dies. And then there's more renewal. All these kids, yay! And then Isaac dies. And I think Moses did that on purpose. I think God led Moses to spread them out that way to make a point. That as we seek renewal, we can expect unexpected tragedy. That we can expect trials. That we should even expect death. I think as you and I pursue renewal with God, there is unexpected tragedy that can come our way and it can come at times often out of nowhere. And I think Moses wants to see that. Death will be part of your life. It will be. Death impacts the young, Rachel at 50, the old, Isaac at 180. Yet Jacob seems to be persevering through this, through these trials. It's interesting how he even images God by renaming his son, right? God renamed him, and then he renames his son, almost, almost as a way of trying to boost some hope and faith in his own soul as he changes his son's name from son of sorrow to son of my right hand, from Benoni to Benjamin. So it seems like this is here for a purpose, to help us, to grip our hearts, that death, trials, suffering comes even as we try to renew our souls in God. The second tragedy in this story is with the son Reuben. Another strange, just dropped out of nowhere, there's this little couple sentences in verse 22 that don't seem to make any sense. Why are they there? Verse 22 says, while Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. I mean, that just comes out of nowhere. It's just dropped in there. Why? Why is that there? It seems like God wants us to see that he's being hit from both ends. Parents and children. His kids are sinning and rebelling as he's burying his parents. I mean, he, he is suffering in both perspectives. He, he's suffering really in both ends, in both 
ways. And it says here that he heard of it. And we know that later in chapter 49, it says this about Reuben. He remembers what Reuben did. And then he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstborn of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. It's like he says, this is who you could have been. It's almost like he's painting a picture. This is who you could have been. And then he says, but actually you are unstable as water. (laughs) You shall not have preeminence because you went off when you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So there's a sense in which he he reverses the blessing that could have been there. This prophetic blessing actually becomes a prophetic curse in some ways because of Reuben's sin. So it seems like God wants to get our attention. If there's a desire in your heart for renewal in your relationship with him, that we should be expecting trials of different kinds. And I think there's a lesson in here for us who are parents, who have kids. This may be a shocker to some of you, but probably not. Your children will sin. And your children at different stages will rebel in different ways. And the most important thing you can do as that happens, when that happens, is to focus on your renewal with God. You need to be renewed with God during that time more than you need anything else. And and God provides that renewal so that when and as kids sin, parents pass away, we can remain in the faith through those trials. I mean, I said this before, and I'm going to keep saying it. Don't take for granted or assume you will persevere to the end. Press into God. Seek renewal vigorously so that you will remain walking with him through whatever trials happen to come your way. So that's number seven. The the eighth thing here, the last thing here that I think we need to see about renewal, about God renewing us, is that renewal is about eternal hope. Renewal is about focusing on eternity as much as it is focusing on today and tomorrow. We're told in verse 29 that Isaac was gathered to his people. I love that little phrase. He was gathered to his people. His body stayed behind, but he went to be with his people. His body was here, but he was gone. He wasn't there anymore. I think there's just this lesson for us to remember that no one escapes death. From the servant girl to the patriarch, from the 50-year-old to the 180-year-old, everyone will die. And the reality of death, I think, is meant to reset our hearts towards God in a way like nothing else can. At least that's what it does for me. I mean, funerals are terrible. There's nothing fun. Even if the person is in heaven, people aren't supposed to die. They're just not supposed to. And as we try to grieve over people we know that have died, especially holiday time when you're missing them the most, you will never stop grieving because it's so hard in our own hearts and minds to try to process someone was with us and now they're not. And we're not made to process that. It's, it's out of our experience. It doesn't make sense. And yet it happens, and it'll happen to all of us. We live on Woodville Road, and at the end of our street, there's a church that has a cemetery. And at least once a month, the backhoe is there just digging a hole. 
Sometimes I get there too late and, and the canopy is there with the six or eight chairs in front of it. And every time I drive by and see that, just a reminder, life is short and I'm going to die. And I think those reminders are meant to bring renewal. I think they're meant to remind us of what's really important. I think they're reminders to help us reset our priorities where maybe they're not set where they should be. I think death is real and, it, and God sends it into our lives in different ways and at different times in order to help us to see our need for him in new ways and in fresh ways so that our hearts will be drawn to him for fresh renewal and fresh faith and fresh perspective for whatever the things are that he wants us to be doing with our lives. Listen, your exit from this earth is a reality. Netflix probably doesn't want to tell you that, but it's true. And I think these three deaths, and particularly this eternal hope that we see with Isaac, is meant to freshly remind us that our hope needs to be set in eternity and not on this earth. And that means to the driver even for why we want to be renewed. <laughs> Renew me now. Prepare me for heaven. Prepare me for eternity. Keep me for eternity. And for us to seek God for those things. So there they are. There's eight of them. I pray that you have time this week. pray that your, your group of three can go through them one more time and see if there's one of these that rings more true for you than others. Maybe there's one or two of these that, will help, that helps your soul when you focus on them more than others. But I just want to encourage you to do that. Please, this week, do this. Just go through the list. Pick the one or two. Explore them in your own soul. Spending time with God. Asking him to renew your heart. Asking him to renew your soul. But don't... Don't overlook this. God, God did this for Jacob, and I think God wants to do this for us this morning, too. So this chapter ends. Jacob dies. Isaac dies. Jacob and Esau are standing together, graveside. And then quickly the book transitions to chapter 36, this genealogy of Esau. And then chapter 37 is going to give us the genealogy of Jacob. So I just want you to notice, if you look, chapter 36, verse 1, it says, these are the genealogies of Esau. That's a marker. There's 10 of those in the book of Genesis. This is number 9. The next one is number 10. So these are like the little divisions in the book, or little markers in the book to kind of give us a place to see the transition. And in this case, I think there's some transition even, but there's also some comparison between, I think, Jacob and Esau, and that's why these two are back-to-back. -back. That's why this renewal for Jacob is there, back-to-back -back with now this genealogy that we have of Esau's life. Tough chapter, though, huh? Lots of names. Well, it must be important. Here's why I think this chapter is important. I think this chapter is important to God and to, his, and to our lives, really, because this shows us the advancements, the advancement of God's redemptive plan. In other words, God's redemptive plan is woven through this chapter. And that's why God has it here. It's a reminder that God is at work. And I know it's hidden, and we're going to see some of it. But that really is the point, I think, of this chapter. So listen, if, if chapter 35 is all about God's renewal of Jacob, then chapter 36 is all about Esau's godless heritage, or Esau's godless life. If chapter 35 is all about the renewal of God's people, chapter 36 is all about the rebellion of Esau's people against God's people. So think for a minute back with me about Esau and Esau's life, right? He despised his birthright, right? He, he gave it up for a bowl of soup. He was hungry. 
So he's like, that's not that important to me. Bowl of soup's more important, so he gave it up. Then he spends a lot of time hell-bent on getting even revenge with his brother for stealing the blessing. Then he's silent. He falls off the map until chapter 33, where we find him suddenly hugging and kissing his brother, forgiving his brother, and now he's here at the death of his father. But not once in Genesis have we seen anything in Esau that showed he had a desire for God. It's nowhere. It's, if you read it and you're looking for, you're following his life, it becomes very blatant. He has no, there's no bent towards God. There's no mention of God. He seems to have no desire for God in any way, shape, or form. He is standing distant from his God. Jacob's relationship with God, I think, is being renewed, but simultaneously Esau is still living without any concern for God. Right? Maybe he's rich, happy-go-lucky. Why do I need God? Everything's going fine for me. Why do I need him? Well, as a result, Esau's descendants are going to rebel against the renewal of God's people. Maybe think about it this way. When Moses gives them the book of Genesis, I don't know how he reads it to them, I don't know how it goes down, but they're about to enter the promised land, right? So you're getting ready with all your people to enter the promised land. Moses hands out this book. As this is read, and he gets to chapter 35 with the sons of Jacob, I'm sure that everyone was like, yeah! And they could identify, that's my family, well, that's my clan. That, I trace back to him, I trace back to him. Well, when they got to chapter 36, it was boo. Every name that was read, boo. No. Because all it did was stir up bad feelings. They knew stuff was bad. Some of them, they didn't know the future things that were going to happen, but some of the things that already happened to them. And so they saw this list as rebellion. These are the people that are rebelling against us. And so that's what this chapter is about. If you, if you care, it can be divided into five parts. Chapter 36, verses 1 to 8, is all about Esau's wives and his family as they lived in the land of Canaan. Then the next little paragraph is 9 to 14. These are his sons. Some people count them up and come up with the number 12. I had a hard time doing that, but maybe it's there. In other words, Esau has 12 sons, and so does Jacob. So this is competition of 12 and 12. Then in verses 15 to 19, these are all the chief or the clan chiefs after Esau's life, after he's gone in Edom. And then 20 to 30, these are the kings that Esau conquered. And then in 31 to 43, these are the Edomite kings that reigned after Esau. So there's a, there's a reason, there's a heading for each one of these little sections. But what do we do with this? <laughs> You came this morning to get renewed, and we just read hundreds of names. So what do we do with it? What's in here that we can see God's purposes in? Well, the first thing I think we see in this is God did keep his promise to Esau. Do you remember the promise he made to Esau? In chapter 35, even as they're being born, he says to Rachel, two nations are in your womb. And that's true, right? Esau is going to become a nation. He's going to become a nation. In chapter 27, there's this promise. I'm going to, let me turn there. In chapter 27, verse 39, if you want to go there, it's back up a few pages, 27, 39, uh, 
Isaac says this about him. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be. And that was true. He ended up in the desert and away from the dew of heaven. By sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. And that's what happened, right? So God kept that prophetic promise to him. And I think there's something in that for us. I mean, why is God keeping a promise to Esau? I think it's just a reminder to us that God is a promise-keeping God, even to Esau. I think it's for us to see that there's common grace on the earth where God blesses people. Did you ever wonder why some people who don't care anything about God seem to be very blessed on this earth? It's not luck. It's God. It's common grace. God brings blessing on people all the time. And that's what's happening here with Esau. I mean, the guy is blessed. And it's all because of the hand of God. And so if God is willing to keep his promises and bless people like Esau who are godless, shouldn't we have more confidence and faith that as children of God that he has his hand on us and that he's going to keep his promises to us too? And I think it's supposed to look at. It's supposed to boost our faith that God is going to keep his promises to you. He's going to keep them. He kept them to Esau. He's keeping them to Jacob. And he will keep them to you. So that's the first little thing I think is a takeaway. The second is this. There's two names in here that I think maybe you caught. We see the word Edom mentioned over and over again. Did you catch that? Esau, who is Edom. Edom will become a people group called the just add an ites on the end of it, right? The Maconites. Just, just add that in. So they're the Edomites. And then there's this other person named Amalek, who will become the Amalekites. So at least there's two here, and there's more. We could spend a lot of time in this chapter, but as I prayed for us, these are the two that seem to stand out and rise to the surface that are relevant, I think, to God's plan in redemptive history, which is meant to Help us to behold God as an amazing God. So we've got these two groups of people. So let me just take a second. Let's talk about the Amalekites for a minute. According to verse, what is it, 30, chapter 36, verse 12 and 16, Esau has this, this descendant, Amalek, who will become a king of the Amalekites. And they will be against Israel over and over again if you've read your Bibles. You guys remember the story of Esther, Haman? He was a... He was an Amalekite. So you guys remember, I love that story. It's a great story. But yeah, so he's an Amalekite. In the book of Judges, God is going to actually use the Amalekites to bring discipline, to judge God's people. He says every time they planted a crop, they came in like locusts and took it from them. So they were, in, they were fighting through the whole book of Judges. And then in 1 Samuel, we see the same thing. Saul is fighting the Amalekites. And then David will come and fight the Amalekites. So they're, they're going to be a thread, a pain in the neck for them throughout their history. So that's the Amalekites. But the other, the other group here are the Edomites. And that word, Edom, appears 11 times in chapter 36. Did you see that? I mean, that's, okay, there's one repeated a little more because it's trying to get our attention, to pay attention to who are these Edomites? Who are they? Why are they spread out throughout this book, throughout this chapter too? I mean, they're mingled in. They're not just mentioned once. It's throughout the whole thing. Why? Well, first thing we're supposed to notice is that Esau is Edom. Did you see that? I mean, that's pretty clear. So he is the Edomite. So it's almost like the Edomites are now representing who Esau was. 
And so let's look at this couple of them. Verse 1, it says, These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Verse 8, I mean, just in case you missed it, Esau is Edom. <laughs> in case you missed it again, verse 9, These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites. So there it is. So it's, it, it's very obvious to us that God wants us to pay attention to whoever these Edomite people are. Well, if you keep reading your Old Testament, you find out very quickly who these Edomite people are. They are constantly in battle with Israel, just like Jacob was constantly fighting with Esau. So in Numbers 20, Moses has just led his people out of 400 years of slavery, and it's time to go to the promised land. And guess whose land they have to pass through to get there? The Edomites. So you got to think about this. you got God's people, all descendants of Jacob, who now have to pass through another land that are all descendants of Esau. Great family reunion. So here's what it says. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel. Isn't that funny? They're still going back and forth about this. We're brothers, right? You know all the hardship that we have met how our fathers went down to Egypt and we lived in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. What do you think they're going to say? Come on through and we'll feed you along the way. Nope. We will not, we will not pass through field. Here's what they're saying. We won't pass field or vineyard, or drink water from your well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left hand until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, Oh no, you shall not pass through, lest I come out with the sword against you. But the people of Israel, they come back a second round, said to him, We will go up by the highway. Really, we will. And they repeat it again. And if we drink of your well, of your water, I am my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot. Nothing more. Response number two. But he said, this is Edom, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. It's a conflict, Right? It continues now through the Edomites and through the Israelites. We're going to see the same thing. King David and King Solomon both have to fight the Edomites in 1 Samuel 14. We read about it. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all the enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, and against Edom. So time is passing, and they're still there, and they're still a thorn in the flesh. Then if you remember... Babylon came along under Nebuchadnezzar. He conquers Israel, deports all the people, and the Edomites are prophesied against by Obadiah. I'm sure you guys all read Obadiah in this last year. I hope you did. It's short, 21 verses. In the 21 verses of the book of Obadiah, I want to make sure I get my facts right here, eight times in 21 verses, we read about Edom being Esau. So if you read it sometime, it's 21 verses, one chapter. It's all about Edom and Esau and the curses that Obadiah 
pronounces over these people for the way that they've mistreated God's people. So again, the descendants of Esau are wreaking havoc, and Obadiah is prophesying destruction over them. In Psalm 137, the Edomites are mentioned again as being wicked people and the desire for Israel to see them destroyed. So the Edomites really are Esau. God's people will always have, always has had, always will have enemies. And this is their enemy. But perhaps the most significant thing about Esau's family line isn't seen until you get to Matthew chapter 2. You guys remember what happened in chapter 2 of Matthew? There's a king reigning. What's his name? Herod. Guess who Herod, guess what family line Herod is a part of? The Edomites. He's part of the Edomite family. And when Jesus is born, what does he decide to do? Kill all the boys. Kill all the boys under two. Once again, what do we see? A descendant of Jacob is fighting against a descendant of Esau. All the way to Jesus' birth, the battle continues. At Jesus' birth, the battle continues. The fight continues between Jacob and Esau. Only now it's through Jesus and this guy named King Herod. But it doesn't end there because King Herod dies. And you know who replaces him? His son. And you know what he does? Acts tells us what he does in chapter 4. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So see what happens? King Herod, the second, third, twelfth, I don't know what he was, is also an Edomite, and he's there to pronounce Jesus' crucifixion. So not only in Jesus' death do we have an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, but at his birth, we also have it at his death. It's, it's like there's this battle that begins in the womb in Genesis, and the fight begins between Jacob and Esau, and then it's through their descendants, and it continues all the way through the storyline of the Bible, all the way through redemptive history, all the way until the day Jesus is born, and then there's this epic battle between Jesus and King Herod, and then it goes all the way through until Jesus goes to die. And once again, there's a descendant of Esau there to battle Jesus, the descendant of Jacob. It just continues. It goes on. It's as if God had a plan when Jacob and Esau were were born that was going to be fulfilled all the way through to the day that Jesus died. Almost as if there was a plan. Almost as if there was going to be a thread through the entire redemptive history that God had put together. So there you have it. You didn't think you'd find Christmas and Easter in Genesis 36. But it's there. It is there. So what do we take from this? What do we take away from this? Well, here it is. Listen, God is on a mission to renew his people, and he's orchestrating the whole thing. And it didn't stop at Jesus' death, or even Jesus' resurrection, or Jesus' ascension. His plan for renewal has come all the way through to today.
His spirit was poured out. So that his redemptive plan continues right through to our lives, right through today, so that we can experience the redemption that he has for us. Here, salvation, really, it's linked all the way back, of course, to Genesis 1 and to Genesis 36. Your salvation is there. God is going to use the life of Esau and Jacob as part of our salvation. Might even say Christmas and Easter are dependent on Esau and Jacob, right? There's a link. Somebody asked you this week, what's Christmas about? Say, well, it's about Esau and it's about Jacob. Because <laughs> it is. <laughs> They're there. They're there in the Easter story. They're there in the Christmas story. God's plan to rescue you from death, from sin, from Satan, goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and to Genesis 36. So I don't know what kind of renewal you're in need of or you desire, but I think when I read this story and I see what God had planned as part of his process to redeem and save me, it builds faith. It stirs faith in me. It renews my soul to see the glory of God in this master plan woven throughout redemptive history for him to renew and to save his people. And so I pray, I pray that our zeal for Jesus will be freshly ignited as we consider Christmas time, God's plan over thousands of years to save us and how it's linked all the way back through the book of Genesis as we, as we have been studying it together. So this week, take some time. Eight things about renewal. Reread Genesis 36. Consider God's plan. Read Matthew 2. See God's plan as he used the conflict between two brothers to bring about our salvation. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for your master plan. It's so crazy even to read your word and to see books that were written, letters that were written thousands of years apart by different people on different continents and yet to see how they all tell the same story. To see how the story is woven together through all of these different authors and all these different experiences and all of them are pointing in one direction and that is to your saving plan for us. And so thank you. Thank you for this, Jesus. And I pray that you would renew us this holiday season. Renew our love for you. Renew our zeal for you. Increase our faith in you. And I pray, Lord, specifically for my friends who walk into this Christmas season sad and grieved over the loss of family or friends. God, I pray that you would help them to grieve well and that you would even use the loss of family or friends to help them to experience renewal in some unique way. God, may they grieve well over the death of a family member and while they're grieving, comfort them and give them renewal in their souls, I pray. Father, those of us who walk through the Christmas season well aware of children who have rebelled or are rebelling, 
And I pray that you would help parents in this room to press into you, to find renewal in you so that they can embrace and love their kids in a way that would honor you. Spirit, I pray that you would use every group of three that meets this week, every community group setting that meets this week, that you would use each one of those gatherings for the applying of this story, for discussions about renewal and where we want to be renewed and how we need to be renewed. I pray you'd anoint those conversations and that the result would be people who love you more, people who desire you being at the center of their lives more. Spirit, do do these things, I pray, and do more. Work in our hearts. Help us to be open to what you want to do. Help us and bless us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.